Welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as our Bible teacher explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. Also, you can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, www.fbcaa.org. You can watch our services at fbcaa.org live or on YouTube. We thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as we open God's Word. Romans chapter 3, please. What advantage then has the Jew... What is the profit of the circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then, how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil, that good may come? As we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of ass is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation 
by his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the faith, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. I invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We will pick up just uh, where we've been for the past uh, few weeks now and continue to see what the word of the Lord has to say uh, to us and to guide us in truth. Let me uh, offer a word of prayer before we look into the text this evening. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you gratefully this evening that we can be here together to worship you and the safety you've provided us. Lord, uh, in my just recent scurry just a moment ago, I was reminded of the fact that you're never caught off guard by anything. Nothing comes to a surprise to you, no uh, no philosophy of man, no sin, no catastrophe, Lord, is outside of your purview and your sight, your direction. And for that, we give thanks, Lord, the peace that that provides us, knowing that your hand is controlling all things. Lord, now we ask that uh, your spirit would guide us and control our understanding of your word as it applies to us today. Lord, may you be glorified. And uh, may the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ uh, be proclamated, Lord, throughout all of our community, Lord, as we seek to proclaim this to, to others, Lord, who need Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. First Timothy chapter 1, we pick up this evening in verses 8 through 11, 8 through 11. I'll remind us, though, just for a moment before we look at those few verses where we've been so that we can understand the broader kind of context here. 8 through 11 falls within a larger kind of section of verses 3 to 11. In verse 3, uh, we see Paul giving the, the kind of charge that he wants Timothy to, uh, to relay to the church in Ephesus, specifically to the false teachers who were uh, speculating about fables and endless genealogies and uh, which was resulting in disputes rather than unity, rather than the, the purpose of godly edification, building one another up in the church. Uh, and so Paul has charged Timothy to stay in Ephesus while he continues on to Macedonia. For whatever reason, he couldn't stay there to uh, continue this kind of attack against or, ref or refute against false teaching. And so he leaves the very capable young Timothy uh, to finish the task here and to correct the people uh, in their thinking. 
He tells us in verse 5 that the purpose of such a command to stop speculating and stop spreading false teaching is, is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. Paul was not just simply trying to assert his authority, but he was concerned about unity, about love, about all of this coming out of a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. We can assume then that the false teachers did not have those kind of characteristics uh, welling up in them. Uh, They were void of a true, genuine love for the word of God and for pure doctrine. And so um, they neglected to demonstrate that in their teaching. The encouragement to us then is to foster a pure heart that comes from a good conscience and, and to have, uh, be assured that our faith is sincere, that it is placed in trust in Christ alone and not anything else. And when we do this, we will then in turn begin to produce the kind of love that Paul is, is, is uh, reaching for and, and striving for us to have. Paul uh, points out in verse 6 and 7 that these false teachers have, have swerved away, they've strayed away, kind of like we saw in Galatians chapter 1. We read that a couple weeks ago, how um, there were some in the, in the church in Galatia who were straying away to another, another gospel, which wasn't in fact a gospel at all. And similarly, the same case here, we see um, that there are some who have strayed from uh, this love and from this from this uh, pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. These ones are desiring to be teachers of the law, Paul says in verse 7, but they do not understand uh, what they are saying or the things which they're affirming in the kind of doctrine that they're teaching. Now, the law that we see in verse 7 and then also then in verse 8 is is in reference to the Mosaic law. Let me read for you now verses 8 through 11, and then we'll walk through those in our time this evening. Paul writes to Timothy in verse 8, says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. We said a week or two back that the whole purpose for which Paul is, is concerned for writing is because he, this glorious gospel was committed to his trust, and he was responsible for protecting it, guarding it, uh, from being subverted and changed and, um, and being uh, changed to a false kind of teaching. As I said just a moment ago, uh, when we look at verse 8, when he says, but we know that the law is good, we see that Paul has in reference the law of Moses specifically. Some have suggested that the word refer- refers to one specific portion of the law, um, some have you know, broken it into various portions. There's the ceremonial laws, there's the civil kind of laws, and so in, in the kind of moral uh, law, but in the law of Moses. But I don't think Paul is thinking of a specific uh, section of the law. Really, when we, when we see the law spoken of in all of the scriptures, it's spoken of as one unit. 
And, and not that we can't kind of com compartmentalize it to think about it better, but uh, Paul here in mind has the whole law of Moses in mind. On the other end of the spectrum, it's not as if Paul just has generally law in mind, just you know, standard kind of principles that govern humanity uh, or a specific government. Uh, this is not just kind of a generic governmental law. Rather, as we said, it is the law of Moses specifically that Paul has in mind. And I can back that up by saying <clears throat> the context surrounding this verse suggests that Paul has this in mind, both the context of verse 7 and also the sins listed in verses 9 and 10 give us reason to believe that this is true. As we said in Saul in verse 7, uh, these false teachers were desiring to be what? Teachers of the law. They desired to do this, but they were not equipped to explain and apply the law properly. Most likely, these were Jewish men who were familiar with the law of Moses, of course, and so they were trying uh, to assert things about it upon the people that they did not understand. The law which they were teaching would have been the law of Moses, but their ability to understand how the law stands in relationship to the gospel was the issue. They obviously had a basic understanding of the law of Moses, you know, especially if they were Jewish, but that's not the issue here. It's not as if they didn't understand the Mosaic law. Rather, the issue was that they didn't understand how it, how it related to the gospel and how we should think about it now in the church age. They were like any other unconverted person who, by the absence of the Holy Spirit, who regenerates, who illuminates us to understand the word of God and dwells us and guides us to understand, they, they could not have comprehended the things of God because they lacked these uh, ministries of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, you may wonder, is there another example of this to prove this point? Well, I think of John chapter 3, verse 9, uh, where Jesus talking to Nicodemus says, you know, you're a, I'm paraphrasing, you're a teacher of the law and you don't understand these things? Well, it's not like Nicodemus didn't have any understanding of the law, but he did not understand the, and comprehend the significance of these things as they applied <clears throat> to the teachings of Jesus and what he was revealing in his word. And that's the same kind of idea that I think that Paul is, is talking about here. It's not as if there was no comprehension of it, but there was not a recognition of how it, how it relates to the gospel of Christ Jesus. The list of sins in verses 9 and 10 are also a reason to believe that this is the Mosaic law in mind, but we'll address that in just a moment. We'll leave that to rest just for a moment here as we look at the, at the next few thoughts here. It's not a surprise, then, that the false teachers were saying things that they could not comprehend if the Holy Spirit wasn't at work in them. They were confident of their assertions regarding the law, but the fact is just because someone's assertive about something doesn't mean they're right. Uh, we can say something like it's true because we're assertive in tone and behavior and probably maybe you know, even kind of um, hold it over them and, and lord it over them, but that does not make it right, intrinsically right. They were wrong in their assertions. Why? Because anyone who lacks the Spirit of God will not be able to understand and apply the law properly if they have not already understood the grace of God 
that is revealed in the gospel of Christ Jesus. However, Paul goes on to clarify a few thoughts, and this one thought is one of his points, is that the law is good if used properly. And that's Paul's point here in verses 8 through 11, is not to say that he doesn't believe that there is no good in the law, or that it can't apply at all, but that it must be applied appropriately and, and in the right manner. There were likely, including the false teachers, those, um, those who were you know, claiming that Paul was kind of an antinomian, you know, no law kind of a, of a person view. They would have probably received Paul's <clears throat> critical remarks of the false teachers as him taking an, this kind of antinomian view. But that is because the false teachers misunderstood Paul's theology, which in their minds seemed to do away with the law. So to refute this notion, Paul goes on in verses 8 through, through 11 to explain that the Mosaic law is indeed good if, and here's the qualifier, if it is used properly and applied properly. On this point, the false teachers and Paul, we could say, were in agreement that the law is good. And that was their you know, kind of defense. So we can't just get rid of the law. We have to apply it. And it is good. And Paul doesn't really disagree on this point. It's just that he disagrees on how it should be applied and used. Romans chapter 7, let me just read that for you, um, speaks to the fact that you know, Paul is not antinomian. He's not against law. He sees there is a value in it and that it is good in certain, for certain purposes and in certain aspects. Verse 7 of chapter 7, when Paul here is uh, speaking about being freed from the law, he says <clears throat> uh, in verse, I'll go back to verse 6, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Then verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is it bad? Is it wrong? Certainly not, Paul says. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. So here we see one positive aspect of the law is it reveals in a person their sinfulness. It gives you know, tangible examples of what sin is and how they have failed to conform to God's perfect holiness. You could also look at verse 12 of the same chapter where Paul says this concerning the law, therefore the law is holy in the, in the commandment holy and just and good. So, you know, those saying that Paul is antinomian, no. Look what Paul says. It is good. It is holy. Uh, without it, he would not have been able to understand the significance of his sin. Verse 14 also uh, gives us further understanding of Paul's view of the law. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And then um, back to chapter 3, I believe I have the right verse here, 331. Yes. Um, Verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish 
the law. However, if you look back at verse 28, this is um, kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So just a few examples here, the fact that Paul is not saying we completely disregard the law because it's, it's bad or it's no longer applicable at all. Rather, uh, his point in 1 Timothy chapter 1 is that we need to make sure that we understand how the law is to be used in an appropriate manner so that we can see the good in it and, and apply it appropriately, appropriately. So Paul says this, in verse 8, that uh, we know that the law is good if used lawfully. Now, when he says we know, he's likely referring to himself and to Timothy, whom is the recipient of the letter, um, probably not including the false teachers. They didn't know. They didn't understand. Of course, he could have been including some of those in the church in Ephesus who were actually born-again believers who did know who did have a right understanding of the law's use. And so, uh, but certainly Timothy is who he has in mind when he says, we know that the law is good if used lawfully. Timothy, by this point, would have been well taught in Paul's doctrine and understood the proper and, in contrast, the improper use of the law. Now, the word lawfully here at the end of verse 8 is kind of a play on words. You know, the law is good if used lawfully. It means, uh, the word lawfully means in accordance with normal procedure. Paul then is making this assertion. The law is good when it is used as it was intended to be used. That is Paul's point there in verse 8. Now, as we think about this then, we might have in our mind, well then, what is the purpose of the law, especially here in the church age? This is where Paul's writing. How do we understand it? It's, how do we understand its function? Well, we could say that the law of Moses has basically two functions, which is to regulate and to reveal. Thinking back to the Old Testament and when the law of Moses was given, it was, then, it was given to regulate through the giving of commands and expectations upon the nation of Israel for it to properly live before God. In doing so, it provided moral boundaries for the nation, and it gave them a kind of distinctiveness, a set-apartness as the people of God in comparison to the nations around them. So that when, they, when the nations looked upon them, they saw the kind of uh, character of God exuding through the nation of Israel. Now, that, unfortunately, didn't happen a lot, or as much as it should have, but that was the idea. And we can see some of those positive effects, even just offhand thinking in the Old Testament, like the story of Ruth, where she um, is drawn into that faith and under the covenant community, and recognizing God as the one true living God. Now, Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 through 25 asserts that the law functioned as a tutor to lead people to Christ. And uh, let me just turn there for a moment. We have the time. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 
Let me begin back in 21, because this really speaks to the point, too, about Paul's view of the law. He says this, Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law, been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Let me just stop there for a moment and say that is, um, that is the one issue here with the false teachers is that uh, they, we could say, misunderstood the, the ability that the law had to save a person. If, Paul says, it could have given life, well, then righteousness would have come through the law, but it failed in that way. It was never able to do that because we are imperfect people and unable to, to complete and fulfill the law perfectly. Verse 22 in Galatians 3, But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. And here's how the law functioned as a kind of uh, a regulator, a guide. In verse 24, Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The law function as a kind of schoolmaster or taskmaster to provide strict guidance to the nation of Israel until the time was fulfilled, until the time came where Christ uh, would come to justify The law also functioned not only to regulate and provide kind of boundaries and to guide the nation of Israel in in moral uh, purity before God, but it also functioned to reveal as well. The law of Moses reveals in that it is an expression of the holy character of God since it came from God. It expresses in its very commands and its, its high standard the moral perfections of of God. Of course, there are other ways God's character is shown, but the law is one such revelation that is given uh, an extended treatment throughout the Old Testament, especially, but also some in the New. It doesn't only function to reveal uh, God's holy character, but kind of oppositely, it it exposes or reveals the nature of sin in, in people. It manifests sin as sin. Like we looked at Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says, With the law I, I came to recognize and to understand my sinful state and the sins which I did. That is, it, it provides a definition of sin, bad things that are displeasing to God, dishonorable to, to him. The law also brings us to a point of knowing or recognition of what sin is, Romans chapter 3. We'll go back to Romans just for a moment. Romans chapter 3, I'll read this here. Three verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, the knowledge of sin. 
The law of Moses brought about a recognition or a, a comprehension, a knowledge of what sin is in a kind of experiential way, in a recognition of, of the sin in their life and uh, their evil and depraved nature. The law brought about this consciousness of our sin, making it impossible then for someone to be justified by the works of the law. Romans 3.28 tell us this. Verse 28, we said this, uh, Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. And then uh, one more verse, Galatians chapter 2, verse 16 knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we, have been, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not uh, by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. By such revelation, the law actually also increases sin by uh, stimulating rebellion against God by its very prohibitions, its commands against certain acts and behaviors, as well as by making sin a very clear violation of God's moral law. Thus, sin becomes transgression that warrants God's condemnation of that person. And so the scripture even teaches that By the law, our sinful uh, nature was even stirred up even more to commit more acts of rebellion and sin against God uh, in light of of it because of its kind of restrictive uh, guidance that it is providing. Man naturally rebels against that, against God's moral commands, and therefore sins all the more. Now, Paul, though, here back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, is saying that you know, the law is good if it's used in this way, in a proper manner, here in the church age. And then he's going to go on here in verses 9 and 10 and 11 to say in more specificity how uh, we ought to think of the proper use of the law. Paul makes this assertion in verse 9 that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for, if I can kind of broadly categorize it, the unrighteous person. Verse 9, Paul says this, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, and so on and so forth. Paul here gives a more precise explanation of how the law is to be used lawfully, or again, according to its intended purpose. Paul and Timothy, and we might include the genuine believers in the church in Ephesus, understood that the law was not intended for a righteous person, but for the lawless and, again, the like, as he kind of uh, calls these different categories of sinful behaviors out. Now, the righteous person here in verse 9 refers to a person who has been justified by faith. That is the kind of person that Paul has in mind. Those who have been declared righteous because of, God, of Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross are not bound to the law of Moses. 
It was not made for them. It does not apply to them. The law does not and never could justify a person in the sight of God. Because, as we said, no man can perfectly follow the law. Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 3. So, the kind of righteous person that is in mind is one who has been justified, who has been saved by faith, not of himself, Additionally, Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, teach us that the law cannot sanctify a person. So um, the reason we bring this up is so when we think about the kind of righteous person here in verse 9, we're saying this, the law does not apply to them because it cannot save them and it cannot sanctify them. Therefore, they are not under the law. Galatians chapter 3 tells us this in verses 1 to 4. He says here to the church in Galatia, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? The answer to that question is no. They received it uh, through faith, and they received the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. So then, verse three: Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, having been born in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, and so Paul's point is here: is if you began in the Spirit, meaning if you believed in Jesus Christ, were born of the Spirit, then you are sanctified. By the Spirit. You're not born by the Spirit of the Spirit and sanctified by the law. It just doesn't work that way. Now, some theologians um, believe that when Paul speaks of the righteous person in chapter 1 of verse 9 in Timothy, that he is referring to the kind of self proclaimed righteous person. So their view on this would be that the law is not for the the self-righteous, pious person, but it's for the ones who are sinners, who recognize their sinful behavior and then turn to Christ because of that. And, um, of course, there are the kind of self-proclaimed righteous people, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, examples, but I don't think that's who Paul has in mind here. This does not seem to fit the context of the passage because the law would be for that kind of person, too, even if they rejected its purpose in revealing their sinfulness and leading them to Christ. So I don't think that's who Paul has in mind. Rather, as I said before, it's the the person who's been justified by faith. The law is not for them. It didn't save them. It cannot sanctify them. It does not serve that purpose at all. The proper use of the law includes applying it to people who break the law, who are lawbreakers, who are lawless, insubordinate, and the like. It applies in the sense that it can convict them of sin, like we read in Romans chapter 3 and so on. The law of Moses has a level of applicability today by showing people um, their wrongdoings and their violation of God's moral standard. 
for illustration, um, a well-known evangelist, a, a gifted evangelist, Ray Comfort, uh, uses this kind of technique of walking a person through the Ten Commandments, just all the way down, saying, you know, have you ever lied? Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Have you ever taken the name of the Lord in vain? And by doing this, he is attempting to reveal and to show them that they have sinful you know, behaviors in their heart. And that, you know, if, if they can't even get through the first Ten Commandments, you know, that, that's just the beginning of God's moral, you know, moral law and his commands. And, you know, they've already struck out by, you know, one, two, or three of the, in the list. Notice, um, though, in verse 9 and verse 10, that... Uh, that uh, the person and the sin is viewed together as kind of one package. Paul is saying this, you know, he connects the sin to the person, the lawless person, the, the murderer, the manslayer, the fornicator, the liar. And I think, you know, we, we've, we've, we've fought this in the past. I don't really see this as an issue in our congregation, but the idea of, you know, of disconnecting the sin from the person and not really revealing and helping them see that your sin is intrinsically connected to you. And so, you know, there's the common kind of, the common kind of saying, you know, hate the sin, not the sinner, or, you know, and that kind of idea. And although, you know, we aren't to hate the person, we are to help them recognize that God hates the sin, and that, per, and that sin is connected to the person, and therefore there is a kind of wrath that God has toward that person. And so we need to keep that in mind and understand that these two are viewed as one and the same. Now, as you look at this list of sinful activities and and kind of persons in verses 9 and 10, you'll notice they reflect the, the Ten Commandments as you walk through them. And I think that's what Paul has in mind, although he's not giving here an exhaustive list, and certainly not just uh, confining it to a list reflected in the Ten Commandments, but there is a kind of parallelism here, and uh, let me just point that out for a moment for interest's sake. And you can also do this, break them into categories, which I did, which is this, the lawless and insubordinate. The lawless person is the kind of person that does not want to be restricted to law. They don't want to have to obey it. They're insubordinate. You know, like a, uh, if a, a, a military person is insubordinate to their commander, they are going against the rules. And so uh, we have the lawless and insubordinate. We have ungodly and sinners. We have unholy and profane, murderers and manslayers, fornicators and sodomites, and then kidnappers, and then the next two liars and perjurers. Now, if you um, you look at uh, the one grouping, unholy and profane, we could say this kind of reflects the idea of of not taking the name of the Lord in vain and uh, acting in such a way. Murderers, of course, the command to not murder. Fornicators and sodomites, the the, the command to uh, to not. 
commit adultery or to not um, you know, envy uh, what another person has. And then liars and perjurers. Now, as I said, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list of sins. These are only a few examples, but there are plenty of other behaviors and activities that are contrary to sound doctrine. And Paul says this at the end of verse 10. You know, he goes and gives his list, but then he says, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, you know, this kind of person, you know, this, the law then applies to this kind of person is the idea. However, furthermore, we need to understand that the law applies to these kinds of people only as we understand it in relationship to the gospel. Let me say it another way. We know that the law is good if applied appropriately, but the only way to know perfectly how to apply it is in relationship to what the gospel reveals about man and sin and Christ and so on and so forth. The lawful use of the law requires the law to be applied to the right people. In addition, the proper use of the law ultimately derives from our understanding of the gospel of Christ, which was committed to Paul's trust in verse 11 we see. Therefore, we conclude that the use of the law must be interpreted in light of the gospel. The law is subject to and must be taught in accordance with the gospel of Christ. And that's where the false teachers failed. They failed to interpret it and to apply it in light of what is revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is just proper kind of hermeneutics in understanding progressive revelation. God has revealed something before. He's provided new revelation or more revelation, and so that doesn't, uh, doesn't mean we reinterpret the old, but it can inform the old so that we you know, properly apply it and interpret it in light of, of what God has now given us. Said another way, the gospel regulates our use of the law, not the other way around. So then, as we consider you know, Paul's point here, this is how we ought to think about it. The law is good and does even have a place in the church age, but it must be used in the way it was intended. That is, according, you know, in a lawful kind of way. The law should not be taught as a means of salvation to the unsaved or a means of sanctification to those who are in Christ. That is not the proper use of the law. The law is useful in revealing the holiness of God as well as the sinfulness of man. And in that way, it is good. And that is Paul's point here. In this way, it is good when it is used, uh, when it is applied to the lawless in order to help them understand their sinful behavior and um, the righteousness and, and perfection of God. However, as we said earlier, it, it fails to ultimately give hope to man. 
And that's why it needs to be interpreted in light of the gospel. Because no man can fulfill the law. Only the gospel can provide the hope of being made righteous. Furthermore, we conclude that the law is not directly uh, applied as the Christian's rule of life today. It is meant, as, we, as Paul clearly says, for the lawless, not for the righteous person. So when I look out you know, to those who are here and to those who are online, I say to the one who has been justified by faith that the law is not your rule of life. However, there is another kind of rule of life, another law, and that is the law of Christ, which does uh, guide and, and govern our behavior. Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, James chapter 2, verse 8. However, this is not kind, the kind of, you know, it doesn't in one sense reflect the strict regulations of the Mosaic law. It's not simply a, a moral code of do's and don'ts and prohibitions and commands. Rather, it consists of what Jesus and then the apostles taught by word and example as recorded in the scriptures. It is to be carried out with faith and love toward God and the power of the Holy Spirit. As such, it is vastly different than the Mosaic law. So, let me wrap uh, Paul's point up in this way by pointing out these few features. The law has some good today. Again, Paul is speaking in the church age, so it can't be as if you know, this no longer applies to us. The statement no longer applies. It does. Paul points out it is good if it is used properly, and the proper use of it, Paul says, is to apply it to the lawless kind of person. Why? as we said, so that it can uh, be a means of revealing in themselves and uh, in informing their conscience of the sin in their life for the intended and, ho- and hopeful purpose of leading them to Christ. And then also, when we understand the use of the law, we need to understand that we can only understand it properly and rightly as it accords with the gospel. The law does not regulate our understanding of the gospel, but vice versa. We are informed of how we are to understand the law by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which tells us that we have been freed from the law. We are no longer under bondage, but we are under, um, we are freed. We are under Christ, in Christ. The false teachers needed to be informed of this because they had a misunderstanding of how to apply the law. They were trying to apply it to those who have already been justified by faith in Christ, seeking to bind them once again to the strict regulations of the law. But this this was not right. This was not according to sound doctrine. And so Paul confronts them on this matter. Paul then is going to go on in verses 12 to 17, which we'll look at next time, to explain the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, the blessed and glorious gospel of the blessed God, by explaining the grace of God and how, in a personal way, it has saved him and, um, 
And this is in contrast to the kind of teaching that the false teachers were propagating in the church in Ephesus. Let's close in a word of prayer this evening. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord, as we go away this evening that we um, come away with a better understanding, having been informed by your word, of how we should rightly think about the law. Lord, may we understand that, like Paul, we're not uh, you know, antinomian. We believe that there is a rule for our life in the Christian faith, it is the law of, of Christ, Lord, and it has a sanctifying kind of work in us when we follow it. Lord, when we allow your spirit to sanctify us in obedience to your word, Lord, may that, Lord, may that be our, our desire to submit to that law, as it were. And be careful not to confuse others or to teach any kind of false teaching that would imply that the law of Moses has any kind of uh, place in, in the church today in the sense of saving us or sanctifying us. And neither does it have that ability to the unsaved person. Lord, it really does stop short of the hope only revealing the sinfulness of man. Lord, may you help us to use it in that way, though, to call others to Christ to help them see their need for, um, for faith in Jesus Christ. And so we ask this, Lord, in your name. Trust, Lord, that you will guide and direct us this week and help us to be uh, an example of Christ Jesus to others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.